Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And fourth-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How's it going, Doctor? I stumbled over my words because I'm so excited that you've rejoined us tonight. So thank you. Thank you for <laughs> I'm happy you. to be here. Uh, the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about the evolutionary theories of depression. And to do that, we have joining us Dr. Fong Vo. Dr. Vo is a first-year psychiatry resident, soon to be second year, with a master's from UCLA before starting medical school in biology, evolutionary medicine, with an emphasis on evolutionary theories of depression and anxiety. She's currently interested in child and adolescent psychiatry, cultural psychiatry, and working with immigrants and refugees. Dr. Vo, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, I, I, you know, before we get going, I wonder if you could just, uh, Fong, I wonder if you could just prep us by describing what evolutionary theories and evolutionary psychology, and maybe even talk about like what's what's the difference with evo- uh, with evolutionary medicine. I, that's kind of a new thing for me. Sure. Yeah, evolutionary medicine basically just explores um, the ideas around why certain disorders exist. Um, So one of the things that a lot of students in medical school and maybe even undergraduate kind of think about is a disease such as sickle cell where it exists. um, But one of the benefits of folks that are carriers, for example, might be um, to protect from malaria. So unfortunately, it's kind of a study of why things uh, may come to fruition. How is it passed down over time and what might have it been uh, made for or beneficial in the past? And then it delves into why it's more of a disorder or something that needs to be treated nowadays, maybe because there's a mismatch in environment or something else um, causing what should have been beneficial uh, basically becomes a double-edged sword. So how does that factor with depression? How can depression at all be an evolutionary adaptive phenomenon or thing that that happens? I mean, how how, how, how is that going to help? humans reproduce and survive and things like that? So that's kind of a million dollar question there, Aaron, but there's quite a few theories about it and we can definitely delve into it in a little bit, but a couple of them that we can talk about is uh, something called the social dominance theory. Another thing could be like an analytic rumination theory. And some of these theories basically describe um, symptoms of depression, such as low motivation, maybe just like less uh, activity levels, feelings of of worthlessness that drive activity um, might be a survival mechanism overall. And something we can talk about also is potentially uh, one of the theories related to serotonin systems uh, might have created social hierarchies um, to help with cooperation and survival as a group. But unfortunately, part of a social hierarchy involves being um, at the top of a food chain and a little bit at the bottom of the food chain, and that affects behaviors. 
I'm not sure if that answers your question, I, but it's I'm intrigued. <laughs> There's so many directions to go, but you did say rumination. I in therapy I deal with rumination and depression quite a bit. Uh, so what about ruminations could be adaptive? Please, so what, uh, please, Joshua and Tosha, just jump in. <laughs> I'm going I'm to say things as I think of them. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Bob. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, so with an analytical rumination hypothesis, the idea is uh, when we're faced with a social problem or a social situation, sometimes it requires redirecting energy to figure out how to solve it. So let's say we get into an argument with someone that in the past might have been a life or death situation if you had to fight for fight um, to death over a resource or something like that. Uh, maybe you will decrease activities um, and motivation to do other things like hunt or other things while you're th- it, and it's a way to conserve energy because we only have so many resources over time. Mm-hmm. So the analytic rumination theory kind of describes it as all right, we're just going to take a step back decrease all of our other activities, have a lot less motivation for other things, maybe even have a low mood, um, just so that we can really focus on how can we fix this problem in front of us uh, in a way that won't bring harm to us. Now, okay, I, this is maybe, but rumination, when I see rumination, I see the negative, that's maybe it's just because I've been trained to think of it that way. I don't see it as a unique, character or a unique um, ability that helps you solve problems. It, I, I, I feel like when I see rumination, it interferes with solving problems because people spend all, you know, all day on, be- in their, on the bed or in their room, isolated, spinning on different problems that, are, that, that appear inflated or overwhelming or um, it, it maybe perhaps greater than someone who's not depressed. And that interferes with solving things. How is that different than just being a human being reflecting on things and wanting to solve a problem? Why, why does depression give you that added survival or um, reproductive advantage? I think the evolutionary theory behind that really has to do with the mismatch with society today. So I believe that it starts off with more of that reflective process that you talked about. And in theory, in the past, it was a lot easier to solve these problems. So for example, let's say you had that argument with someone, maybe you're after a little bit of thinking, your idea is, all right, why don't I bribe them with like a yam or why don't I groom them? And maybe that will solve the problem. So it doesn't usually last as long, but I think nowadays, especially with social media and um, other kind of uh, political spheres, and I mean that in terms of like in school hierarchies or even at work or things like that, not all of these problems have a clear-cut answer. And there's a lot of systemic issues that come into play, um, including like financial issues, other stressors, that no matter how much you think about it, there's not always a clear answer. And I think that's when a lot of these folks get stuck in that reflective phase. And I'm sure that Dr. Yamaguchi and Dr. Poole have also seen other folks go through that as well and maybe even bring into therapy some of the same problems and try to help brainstorm during these episodes. I mean, that's very relatable. That's very relatable. I, I don't know if it's too early to introduce a spanner into the works here, but so basically, Fong, from what you shared with us sort of uh, in the beginning about social uh, social hierarchy and social competition theory? Did I get 
that's right. That the notion is that uh, sort of a depressive state occurs as the result of there's a some kind of hierarchy or there's some kind of differential, and that depression or uh, low mood, low energy, anhedonia, any number of these things arose as a result of like social dynamics within within a group. Maybe I think you uh, had referenced primates primarily, and that am I to understand that those argue that depression is like a competitive advantage. If you're, if you're like, let's say social hierarchy and you're, and you're on the bottom and you're depressed, does that confer any kind of benefit or is that just like an explanation for where depressed feelings might come from? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and it depends on which theory you kind of specify. So going back to the first one you mentioned, which is, the, um, the social competition theory. It's the idea uh, here is, um, let's say you do get into that fight and let's say you lose and you lose numerous amounts of time, like, all, like multiple times in a row or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in these cases, when you're kind of fighting almost to the death in these cases, if you continue to use all of this energy um, to fight this opponent when you know that you're at a disadvantage, then at this point, it's really not helpful anymore and it becomes futile. So the idea in this case is the depressive symptoms are uh, a rule of competition where you kind of realize that, okay, I'm just going to back off now. I realize that this is not really my place to go. And in this case, that uh, withdrawal, the anhedonia, the low motivation, even the low self-esteem, the low self-worth is a way of protecting yourself from further harm and further damage from these fights. Mm. And in terms of the other theory, the social dominance theory, um, and I can talk about the serotonin stuff a little bit, a little bit later, that's a separate component. But in this case, it does mention that there is a survival benefit. um, If you are at a bottom rung of a group, um, that still means that you're in a group. So it means that you might have like less ability to do certain things, but it's easier to step down and join the group and maybe give some of your resources away to other folks and not need as much resources or fight for it. But you're still kind of welcomed into that protective sphere of somebody with maybe higher levels of serotonin that happens to be in a more dominant position. So is what I'm, that's how I'm understanding it. So it is the adaptive function that depression offers is it facilitates acceptance of a lower hierarchical status rather than continuing try to challenge and then perhaps lose resources or lose your life. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay, but and now I'm, but I'm just gonna be a little bit challenging and impress this. So, <laughs> and now depressive, the people who are depressed will frequently, yes, think about their lower status, but not accept it and look to strive higher or feel bad that they are at that level. So it seems like it's not, it's less of an acceptance than a decreased activity and um, a a kind of a a feeling that that, that you don't want to accept, that stagnation, it reduces hygiene, it reduces um, a, a, a 
active engagement with others, which would, it would seem like that would be the adaptive part of it. it but am I, what am I missing here? Yeah, I think part of it, I mean, evolution is a very slow process. And sometimes it starts more with behaviors than it does in thought process itself. So your body and the mechanisms behind it will decrease your energy first. And us as people who are reflective and a little bit competitive by nature, I think it takes a lot longer to accept it because all of us do kind of strive for survival in one way or another. It's just different when you're also fighting your body's biology or potential mechanism that creates these actions in an attempt to get you to continue to propagate, whether you kind of agree with it or not is, is a separate mm. endeavor, I think. And Fong, you mentioned a correlation between this theory and what we see in bullying. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I guess to, to back up a little bit, um, just to mention, you know, some folks with depression, as we've kind of understood it neurobiologically, uh, in, in the easiest, most simplified form, tend to have low levels of serotonin. And we can actually see in the animal kingdom, specifically in apes, that those with lower amounts of serotonin tend to be more at the bottom of the ranks. Um, and those with higher levels tend to be at higher levels, and it's actually a linear function. So if you can increase serotonin in some of the lower level apes, um, they actually move up in social hierarchy and are more motivated and things like that. And it's hard to tell in terms of what came first, right? Like the chicken or the egg. Do they have low serotonin levels because they're lower in the hierarchy? Or is it the, the other way around? Do they have low serotonin because they are lower on the totem pole? And the way that I think about it is in concepts of bullying, uh, especially in, in young teens nowadays, and if they don't have any other spheres, um, let's say this is their only sphere, their only friendship, their only uh, thing either on social media or through games. If they're constantly bullied, they're basically being pushed to the bottom of the rung here. And I wonder if that really affects their serotonin levels and how much that might cause them to feel terrible about themselves. And if they feel like, okay, there's no point in fighting anymore, their body will kind of just naturally withdraw. And again, it comes with that feeling of like worthlessness and hopelessness that potentially might've come from the social competition theory. But again, these are all, mm -hmm. these are all theories. Who's to say? I, it, so, go ahead, Joshua. No, you, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, well, I was just thinking about the cycle of poverty with this, the implications of the cycle of poverty. Did, um, did you guys, did you guys talk about that at all in terms of what you're reading or talking about in your classes? I think some of that goes a little bit more into the analytical rumination hypothesis, but I guess it could also tie into the social dominance theory as well. And I mean, poverty um, and lower socioeconomic status is exactly how it sounds, right? Lower socioeconomic status. It's a, mm. it's a status and a ranking in the system. Um, and so I'm thinking I you're like not only fighting like the structure, um, but you're also fighting your own biology to get mm -hmm. out from that status. Yeah, so it's not even just a simple um, school structure. It's a more kind of institutionalized 
system that makes it a lot harder to move forward and move on. And it also ties into the analytic rumination hypothesis because with uh, lower socioeconomic status, there's not always a very easy or fast way to solve that problem or move up. Mm -hmm. I foresee that that could be a really controversial idea. And evolutionary psychologists, and and, and I, I suspect people in evolutionary medicine probably deal with controversy quite a bit to think that there's some sort of neurochemical foundations of poverty. Oh, no, I would definitely wouldn't go that far. No, it's it's all just wondering how how can we kind of utilize these mechanisms or potential mechanisms to really boost our patients in the long run? And I I, I cannot agree with that statement. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to Dr. Fong Vo. She's a first-year psychiatry resident, and she has a master's in uh, biology, evolutionary medicine. And we're talking about the foundations or the evolutionary theories behind depression. Uh, go ahead, Joshua. So I think in, in talking about this, several things have come up for me um, that I, I think either I'd love to hear, uh, Fong, if you can sort of address uh, what's been said or what you've encountered on this topic, or if it's if it's been encountered, I guess it's pretty arrogant to think that it was, it hasn't. So I won't say that, but the idea that, um, so I mean, I mean, we've brought up serotonin and it's, you know, relative levels and how that comes up with social hierarchy and dominance and things like that. Um, which I think is predicated on the, we briefly spoke about before the episode, the mono monoamine hypothesis that low serotonin equals depression, um, and or anxiety. Um, However, there's, that's not necessarily always the case. I mean, um, that low serotonin, I mean, otherwise boosting serotonin levels would cure everybody's depression. And we know that, you know, with SSRIs and SNRIs, it's two, you know, two thirds generally after one and two trials. It's, it's also curious to me that we're assuming that having low serotonin levels, like we see in higher primates, um, would that necessarily mean that okay, maybe low serotonin levels could just mean depre- uh, like depressed mood rather than a major depressive disorder as we define it sort of in the modern Western hierarchy of like diagnostic um, criteria. I guess I, this, this, is, this is going to get to a question, I promise. The thing that I'm kind of circling towards here is, and stop me if it's a dumb question, do we know that throughout the course of evolutionary history, higher, prominent, higher primates or hominins had any evidence of something that we would consider depression rather than just a, a low mood from being low in the status, like what we call depression now, how do we determine that this occurred throughout the course of evolutionary history? Because my assumption before coming into this meeting was that, um, and I can be wrong about this assumption, but that depression is an emergent property of an industrial society. I'm happy to argue that point, but. I would say that I agree with you on that last point in that it is a huge component of industrial society, but it's also hard to answer your question. Um, definitely there's, and, and we know that there are a lot more theories to major depressive disorder than the monoamine hypothesis at this point in um, clinical education. 
However, there have been evidence of specifically bonobos, I believe, where um, those with lower serotonin, you can actually see them have, in theory, um, many of the factors that would contribute to what our diagnosis of major depressive disorder Oh, interesting. Um, It's very hard to, you know, pick apart things like guilt and suicidal (laughs) ideation, but there's a lot of self-harm that happens among primates that we see. see. And then there's other behaviors that would show guilt, such as if there's like a a problem, they might, uh, a problem with some person, like some of them might offer more things for a longer period of time, for example, grooming behaviors or fruits as a, a way to kind of assuage uh, like a somewhat guilt-like process as much as mm. can be defined. It, yeah. it's, it's really hard because these are a lot of primate specialists and I, I don't know that much about this, but there, there's been behaviors like this um, that often change if, these primates are treated with like fluoxetine. Interesting. Okay. Did so not know that. We have talked about it. Yeah, we have talked about it a bit. And it's been a good six years since I really uh, updated or really delved right into all of the newer treatments. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely see these within the animal kingdom as well, such as with um, animals, like after they lose either um, a friend or a partner or an owner, like we see cats and dogs get what we would consider quite severely depressed. They'll stop eating, they'll, they won't sleep, they'll start self-harming, things like that are definitely seen within nature. Hmm. That's a really good point. I had not considered that. I was thinking more in like the, how we call the depression in, in humans, but you're right. I mean, Dogs, cats, they get depressed. Elephants seem to have some kind of mourning. Now that we're talking about this, I recall. Yeah, huh. I think horses will will bite themselves too. Hmm. I think cows also get very, very upset if their best friend passes. So, so is it possible that it's more of an evolutionary vestige than it is something that confers a benefit then? You know, I the know appendix sure. of, of uh, emotional issues. That's a good question, and I'm not sure. Hmm. I have another question. Also why there's so many theories. I have another question as far as if we're talking about depression as an adaptive function, we, you know, we all know, we're all clinicians, we realize that when you're depressed, you're more likely to commit suicide. Um, uh, depressed folks are uh, uh, depressed. I dress women tend to have a little more problematic uh, uh, child rearing um, experiences because of the depression, how it interferes with that. And so that, how would you, how would an evolutionary um, psychiatrist or how would evolutionary medicine explain some of these, uh, the impacts of depression in that kind of way? This is an extremely, uh, controversial theory that I wasn't quite going to mention, but there, there's some ideas that trickle in uh, about altruism in terms of altruism and suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. And mm-hmm. the idea is if it becomes a component that is uh, so far down the line that it really can't be fixed whatsoever, then sometimes uh, animals within the kingdom will 
a little bit sacrifice themselves for the good of their relatives, so to speak. Because at the end of the day, if it's theoretically a genetics number, if, uh, if you don't survive, but your offspring, as well as all of your siblings' offspring survive, then to sum it up, you have quite a bit of genetic uh, DNA that's being dispersed out there. Um, and you can see that, I believe, in prairie dogs and the idea when there are uh, large creatures. I forget if it was an eagle or what their natural uh, predator is. But if they are in danger, one prairie dog will tend to cry out and become kind of the sacrifice for everybody else to escape. And it's kind of that situation if uh, not everybody is able to uh, protect themselves and things like that. In terms of your second question, um, I, I'm not quite sure what you mean uh, about mothers. Do you mind repeating or um, Yeah, there's some research that um, shows that um, there can be a lot of uh, difficulties when a, a mother is uh, a, a severely depressed and caretaking. Um, it's a very demanding job. It requires a lot of energy. And there can be some difficulties with that and and uh, how I'm wondering how does that how does that help how does that help adapt uh, and enhance uh, reproductive success and things like that mm, yeah part of that does have to do with that altruism in terms of if you're less likely to use energy then you're less likely to eat and less likely to take resources from your offspring which is a little bit debunked, um, at least in terms of postpartum or perinatal uh, depression. Another possible idea that could be considered is social manipulation, depending on what kind of population that mother exists in. If she kind of steps back, it is a signal to others to pop in and take care of the family while she rests and conserves her energy. Can you talk um, a little bit more about social manipulation theory? Yeah, social manipulation theory is a little bit more specific to signaling of exhaustion um, and signaling that it's, it's time for somebody else to take over for this point in time. Sometimes that has to do with signaling the partner to either take on the role that one holds in that social hierarchy. And sometimes it's to um, just increase uh, activities levels like requesting grooming or requesting a little bit more food as a way of signaling, hey, I need to recover from either an illness or I just need to step back. I don't uh, know if that hypothesis has been fully fleshed out, but I just know that it exists. Also, for these evolutionary theories, I imagine that not every situation needs to have that... Um, advantage per se, right? I mean, there can be um, certain situations where this might be advantageous and then other nuances where it's not. Definitely. I'm sure that it is. And unfortunately, evolution is also a lot of trial and error. Right. So maybe we don't necessarily see all of the circumstances where it's not because those animals within the sphere just haven't propagated as much i'm not sure there's a lot to be said and a lot that's difficult to study mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you make a good point now um is it in my understanding is correct so there must be a 
strong genetic link to depression than for these kinds of theories to be correct or borne out. Is that, am I getting that right? And, and, then, and then I'm wondering, you know, what's the current state of, of that? Did you, or do you know? It's been a while, but I would say that there is a strong component to genetics. And I think Dr. Yamaguchi and Dr. Pohl might be able to talk about more statistics of how depression runs in families and things like that. Well, I think 100% of people living in the world right now are depressed. Um, and I can say that uh, that's 100% accuracy. Uh, that's a fact. Everyone that I've ever met and known in the world that exists is depressed right now. <laughs> I think that's... I think that's uh, I don't know. I don't know if genetics, I don't know why that would be the case, but it seems to be everybody I bump into is pretty bummed. So I'm not really <laughs> sure what would cause that. I believe uh, one, another podcast I might've listened to a while back, I think it was Carla Psychiatry did mention a genetic component specifically to serotonin receptors um, and how some folks are less likely to benefit from specific SSRIs because they don't work on certain faulty receptors. And that seems like a component that's definitely genetically based, but mm. I can't say that I've done a wide uh, GWAS or a genetic study <laughs> looking at all of the genetic markers there. <laughs> uh, I love talking about these theories, but I think that one is a little too nuanced for my particular brain. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about the evolutionary theories of depression with Dr. Fong Vo. Dr. Vo, thank you for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Joshua Poole. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on kucrgmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get, Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.